Hello and welcome to CityWire Funds Fanatic. I'm Gavin Lumsden and today I'm talking to Daniel Kohler of Bellevue Asset Management in Kuznacht, Switzerland. Daniel's on the line to talk about BB Biotech, the Swiss-listed investment company whose assets he's managed for 13 years. Although, actually, Daniel, you're telling me you've worked on the team, on the portfolio for uh, nearly 20. That's a good long uh, record. Yes, uh, thanks for having me and absolutely yes, thrilled to be here 20 years soon and it's going to be in spring and I said that's a, I think a nice coincidence as well that I said BB Biotech will turn 30 so I have missed the first decade so to speak but obviously tracked the company back then but very happy to now be part for almost two decades. That is the big number we're here to talk about BB Biotech celebrating 30 years since it floated on the six uh, Swiss exchange in Zurich so it's a good milestone um, to look back on its record. But before we uh, get into that, Daniel, why don't you tell our listeners um, what BB Biotech does? I mean, I guess the name does give us a bit of an idea, but what areas of the biotechnology market um, is it investing in? Yes, so BB Biotech is, as I said, as a Swiss investment company, started in 1993 and since then has not changed. So our main focus is actually to identify and invest into promising biotechnology companies with a focus on human medicine. So um, we uh, are not investing into life science tools or diagnostics or, for example, set the green or white biotech. We really consider only investment candidates that focus on, on the development of human medicine um, because I think that's one of the most exciting and promising areas. And we have seen many, many um, actually very successful investment case of the past and are quite optimistic that this can continue on this basis well forward. Okay, and um, so it's quite focused and also you focus on um, medium-sized, mid-cap companies rather than the big um, pharma giants, is that right? Yes, that's right. And I said the reason for that is, um, I would say the focus is not just purely on mid-cap. We actually start to look at even private equity companies or non-listed companies that are in, let's say, clinical or close to clinical development stage. Um, we start normally our investment cycle when companies are defined as more like smaller cap. So they can be a few hundred million to a billion or two in market cap size. Why you mentioned that and why most people perceive us to be a mid-cap investor, because the large part of our current portfolio exposure is actually in the in the mid-cap. So almost 60% is what we define as mid-cap. That's often companies we have invested for some years now. They have grown in sizing as position over time. And that's, I said, why I would say that the heavy weight or our investment focus in terms of um, short and midterm performance is actually in the mid-cap space. And as we hold some large caps as well, these are said most often longer-term holdings where at some point we will then exit if these companies continue to mature and actually start to grow less. That becomes then for us, for example, um, an argument to, for example, take all the profits and, and, and reinvest into the next generation of attractive new ideas. Okay. So um, so a good range of companies, but it's quite, it is quite focused. You hold about 28 stocks at the moment, so that's quite concentrated. Um, some of our listeners you know, like their investment trusts a great deal, so they might be more familiar with um, Bellevue Healthcare, which is an investment trust, uh, a sister fund which is listed in London. Um, what's the difference between um, what you do and what it does? Yeah, I would say that <clears throat> I think many of the, actually, I said, um, I was actually part back then, actually launching the Healthcare Trust as well. That's so right, we'll first see... two years you were, on, you were, on, you were involved yeah, exactly, with it, Exactly, exactly, with, with Paul and Brett back then. So I said um, many of the things we actually replicated in terms of 
um, I would say concentration, the number or the maximum number, so that we have actually, as I said, I would say um, um, quite a concentration, but still ample room actually to have a certain uh, basket or portfolio approach. Um, so on that front, it's very similar. I would say the scope mostly for them is um, they have the broad healthcare mandate in terms of looking for the best ideas and the best areas within all what healthcare has to offer. Our scope, as I said, is, if you want to say so, narrower in a sense that, as I said, we focus only on, as I said, um, smaller to mid-cap biotech companies with the focus set on human medicine. So that's, that's, I would say, is the main difference overall. The rest in terms of structure, in terms of a set that we can work with leverage, that we have a concentrated portfolio, a mid to longer term investment horizon, I think most of the other, let's say, classical strategies hold true the process is obviously slightly different as well as the team so i have a dedicated team on the bb biotech front where we are as i said right now seven uh, um, colleagues on the portfolio management and analytical side we have expanded that team uh, two and a half soon three years ago with uh, a data science person that has been recently expanded to become a team of three and i said we have some investor relation colleagues who are actually um specifically um, on the BB Biotech mandate, as such, if I can call it like that, because said we have an independent board of directors, um, and Belvia said has that mandate since actually since its inception, um, and from that perspective, I said we have clear commitment, focus, and dedication to BB Biotech. Great stuff, so well resourced. Um, just the, going back to the launch in late 1993, you know, did that reflect you know Switzerland's strength in pharmaceuticals? You know, we think of Switzerland, we <coughs> think of Roche and Novartis, you know, big big pharmaceutical companies. Right, um, as I said, I would say that definitely helped. Um, back then, though, biotech was clearly almost completely US centric. So in in I said the 80s and 90s, you had uh, the biotech industry to the large degree. Um, in the US, um, I would say most of the pharma companies back then were actually so-called small molecule um, companies. So the classical biotech product in a sense to use a set recombinant protein production, etc., which clearly was um, the reason and foundation of the biotech industry. So these things were completely separate. And I think um, if Elisa said to the founders of BB Biotech back then in, I said, the early 90s, they say as well that pharma back then was not yet, I mean, obviously aware of it, but not yet investing into this. And that actually left a so-called gap or an interesting area open for investors like BB Biotech. And then I said to collect capital here from Swiss, Swiss investor and some European investor and deploy this capital, I said, back then almost exclusively into uh, the US biotech sector back then. Okay, well, it's got a market value recently of 2.3 billion uh, Swiss francs, which is about 2 billion pounds. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good size fund. I wonder, is it well held by Swiss private investors? And how many people um, hold it outside Switzerland? Can you tell us yeah, about we the have, investor base. Yes, absolutely. So interesting question. So we have, as I said, I would say we have a good sense of uh, where the shareholder base is. Um, uh, the shareholder registration is not uh, mandatory, so to speak, but nevertheless, over obviously now soon three decades, I think we have quite a good understanding. I would say um, it fluctuates somewhat, but I would say Switzerland has been always kind of like ranked number one in a sense, like 30 to 40%. Uh, Germany is another important factor. And then I said, we have the UK and the Nordics. Um, these are, I would say, the, the main four areas where I said we have a substantial shareholder base uh, for BB Biotech over a set, the three That's decades right, that were now listed. 
So the shares are listed in Switzerland and in Germany, not in London, yes. but, you, it, but the shares are available. You can buy them on um, you know, leading share dealing sort of websites. Um, and the long-term performance has been, uh, has been impressive, according to your fact sheet, from the launch to the end of September, a total, share, total shareholder return of uh, over 1,800, 1,800% rather, um, well ahead of the uh, NASDAQ biotech index, um, which delivered uh, 1,175%. Now, that's in Swiss francs. Sterling uh, shareholders would have got something different. But um, in your in your local currency, you are beating the Nasdaq biotech. I was interested to see that the benchmark goes that far back, actually. No, it does actually. I said, uh, although interesting enough, if you even ask uh, Nasdaq for the source of, you know, sometimes out of curiosity, we have asked, for example, for an analysis regarding um, membership and constituents. Back then, um, you get the answer from Nasdaq. There's no proof for what the data is, because back then I said the registration and 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 all the information was obviously slightly different held and and uh, as such. But I said we had biotech companies, um, many of the large caps that you still see in existence, like the Amgens and Gilead's and Biogens and others of the world, that have actually launched in I said the late 80s, early 90s, um, and launched or issued as well or IPO'd in stock market. So we have uh, said a long-term track record for for I said the U.S. industry, a short term. Um, out of obviously Europe and other areas. And I said the returns have been actually much more spectacular if you would have or if you would have had that dialogue, I said, in in the 2021 timeframe, because I said uh, throughout the pandemic, obviously, we saw a certain rally and spike in terms of a lot of share price in biotech that played, I would say, a very important role as well for, I said, solving the societal problem or pressure point that we had back then with the pandemic. And now the last two years, we actually have seen quite some drawdowns. But as you just pointed out, um, the biotech industry has proven itself to generate very attractive mid and long term returns. It comes as well, though, with volatility. And said the last two years have been, um, I would say, disappointingly, uh, at least for me, a correction. I think now even an overcorrection. But we shall see how this goes on. And absolutely, our ambition is as well on a forward basis um, to repeat the success of the past. Absolutely. Well, Daniel, we'll come back here. Yeah, we're in the grip of yep. a, a biotech bear market. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, there's been that big sell-off, like you say, since uh, uh, 2021. But um, yeah, just looking at the, the long-term performance and the, and the, and the history of the, the company, you know, can you highlight some of the, the main trends and the highs and lows um, you know, before the pandemic? Because clearly, yes. biotechnology really came into its own uh, when we're trying <laughs> to beat, uh, beat COVID. But yeah, if you uh, go back to the, the 90s, the early... Uh, noughties, 2000s, etc. Yeah, sure. What, I said 1993. What, it was. What were people yep. getting excited about in biotechnology yep. back then? What's what's been changing? Yeah, sure. So I said 1993. I would say it was mostly about, or when the launch period was. It was about the said, what can recombinant technology do? Meaning, <clears throat> if you do an industrial manufacture process, for example, for proteins, that I said the biotech industry started off. <clears throat> that was, I said, back then, kind of like the revolution and triggered, I said, a lot of interest, new opportunities, and new um actually um therapeutic areas that you could potentially tackle then obviously the spike we had in the 99s and 2000s that was around um i said when the first human genome got sequenced that it was about the genetic i call it not revolution but at least a deeper understanding meaning back then it was per perceived that you know understanding the genome better 
would lead to faster, easier, and obviously as well, more successful um, clinical development. That led then as well for one of the lows, let's say, or the down points in 2003 to five, when I said um, some of these dreams shattered. Um, and I said many of these very early companies actually failed then in, in, in even public markets or at the latest point. And then actually from then on, we had multiple ops. I would say a very strong period as well for us has been 2010, 11 to 2015, 16. Interesting enough, that was, I said, when Obamacare, so for example, a big US healthcare reform kicked in. And initially, a lot of investors perceived this to be um, a substantial risk, didn't prove like this. We saw a lot of actually transformative medicine come around. One of the prime examples that comes to mind is, for example, hepatitis C got suddenly cured. We have seen, as I said, the introduction of the first a genetic medicine like gene therapy and cell-based therapy. So we saw technology really starting actually to translate or result, if I want to say so, in more and more attractive um, and, and highly functional or helpful products for, for patients and for, for severe um, indication. And then I said, um, we saw obviously um, a bit of a US election cycle. The biotech market reacted quite negatively, for example, towards um, back in election cycle when it was a race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, I said Hillary, um, with a single-payer healthcare system, etc., was seen as one of the major risks. Obviously not she herself, but I said the Democratic Party with that strategy back then. We saw then the pandemic up and down. I said initially every market sold off, biotech rebound as well, and then overperformed because a lot of the vaccines and therapeutic products and diagnostics product came out of, I said, many of the biotech labs. Then I said the recent correction that we, we just touched on, um, which is said one of, you know, I would say the sell-offs that we think is triggered obviously by capital markets, much more so than, and, and obviously capital demand and alternatives like the large techs in the US right now, um, or, you know, a new field or disease area that came up like obesity that suddenly grabbed, so to speak, the spotlight and the headline and obviously as well the commercial success. Um, and that has triggered, a set some fundamental shifts and, and capital flows. And that's, I said, all a bit of the reasoning why I said we have now seen um, kind of like a bear market situation over the last one, almost now two, two and a half years soon that the sell-off has continued. So, well, you've mentioned the sell-off a, a, a few times. So shall we start to get into that? Because, yep. um, yeah, broadly speaking, the share price has sort of halved uh, since um, end 2021. You know, in common with many other growth funds, you've been uh, hurt by the increase in inflation and the increase in bond yields and since the interest rates are going up. And um, that is seen to undermine the, the current value of sort of jam tomorrow stocks, if I might put it like that. Um, but is that how you look at your portfolio? Are your um, because um, your top positions are quite revenue generating. You pay a dividend, yes. and uh, yep. assume you pay a dividend out of real uh, investment income. Is that correct? Um, so I said it's not dividend income that we have out of the portfolio because in biotech, as you pointed out, we invest in growth. Right. So we take it actually ultimately out of capital in a sense that we say um, retained earnings, meaning you know we take profits out of the underlying investments. And that's actually the feeder, so to speak, of obviously the dividend payout that we have. So our total um, return is obviously a combination, I said, of the share price return. And you have to adjust for that, obviously, for whatever um, the dividend is. That's in general a 5% 
payout, but I said, given uh, the, the more, let's say, or recent times, a bit more volatility, um, that can then even be a higher figure, depending obviously where the share price moves to. Um, but I said, um, you know, the reason I don't see just the capital markets, or I said the interest rates as a bit of tricky, I said, I think that's the the most obvious one in the sense that people said, say, capital costs become higher meaning forward profits or profits in the future that are discounted today's so-called net present values obviously go down. Um, I would say it was it has become a bit more tricky, I said, for the smaller mid-cap companies that require still money to actually invest into their pipelines to find the so-called risk capital um, that has obviously pressure share prices on top. And then I said we have seen one or the other, I would say, certain structural considerations that M&A was shut down for quite some time, which was always an important feeder as well for biotech success and investments. Like I said, we had the Federal Trade Commission that suddenly was much more stringent and cracked down on a lot of the deals. We have seen the Inflation Reduction Act that got launched um, in terms of said what will happen to the US price policies on um, pharmaceuticals and obviously medications or drugs. Um, I think that has to be digested by market on still better there is certain responses, um, certain overreaction, uh, certain risks as well, to be fair. And ultimately, I said, we need the success, the fundamental success of the industry. So I think it has been an accumulation of all of this. And the pendulum is now very negative and I think over negative. And in that, we see the chance. Like I said, a lot of the fundamentals have continued to go on very well for us and progress continues. Well, let's talk about some of the fundamentals then, or some of the company specifics. I mean, what you know, your portfolio is divided up into sort of four broad themes around gene therapies, neurological diseases, artificial intelligence, and RNA therapies. Um, I don't know if we've got time to uh, unpick all of those, but I just I suppose my main question is, you know, what do you think the market is missing? You know, this top-down derating of um, the market you're investing in. What, what, what is being missed? What are the opportunities? What are the valuable things being created by some of the companies you're invested in? Yeah, so I would actually start on a different topic that you just didn't even mention because I would say one of the major pain points over the last two years plus minus was, for example, oncology. That was as well where, you know, back, I would say, 10 years plus, you know, we saw, um, I said, the so-called immune oncology, meaning how can we actually trigger the immune system to fight, for example, cancer cells better. That was the big step and big leap back then in a sense um, that I said we saw the first antibodies that actually helped to 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 stimulate so-called immune system to attack the cancer cells better. And since then that field has, you know, we have seen um, I want to say an overcrowding, but quite some competition there. That was obviously one thing that we have to reflect on in terms of how does competition look like is there enough room for everybody to move? Um, and I said, some of the trials have failed because said the next step up over, I said, these very good so-called standard of cares of the past has proven to be quite challenging. We see that in target oncology now as well, meaning um, that you have much better defined patient population that can address. We see there are actually very good clinical results, but the market is obviously waiting to get the proof will this be as well an economical success or not? So I think in that, there's the risk, but as well, we think the big chance that some of these, as I said, pipeline projects will um, actually surprise to the upside, both in terms of clinical result, meaning what do they bring to the individual patient? And then in the mid and longer term as well on the commercial side. We think um, 
in certain other disease areas, for example, you mentioned RNA. I said the mRNA was obviously one that made major headlines throughout the pandemic. That's another area I can tell you that said back then the market got you know ahead of itself in terms of expectation and when the pandemic got called off or got called to an end now we see still some vaccination but now it's all back to the doubt will actually next iteration of products being it for example a flu shot an rsv vaccine and other products that are based on mrna technology we're almost back to the same critical point of view in a sense well can they compete will they be successful yes or no and that's why we saw some of these, for example, mRNAs like in our portfolio in Moderna, um, obviously divide by five almost or soon six fold from the peak to where it is now. Because that market wants to see is actually the next big chance for a sustainable and and, and solid mid-long-term business there. And then how I said RNA. Of, how much, so, in the case sorry, of yep. Moderna, how, how yep. much of an overreaction is that? Because you know their platform presumably proved its worth in, in developing yes. the vaccine. And, uh, and, we, and other companies did it pretty quickly. Um, it was a success. Why, 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 why is the market so uh, sceptical that it can't, seemingly saying, can't be done again? Yeah, that's, that's still a bit of a conundrum even for ourselves, I can tell you. Um, it's still, I think, part of that, the, the, the skepticism towards sets new technology, because said the pandemic was obviously in a very exceptional situation in terms of the timelines were extremely fast. But on the other hand, we have seen a said that if you think of it, all the other, let's just stay on vaccines, for example, all the other vaccine technologies have actually failed or have not been competitive versus mRNA. So we had the, uh, we had the virus vector-based, that's a bit of technical details. We had recombinant subunits. So you can say the classical vaccine technologies we deploy for now decades have proven not competitive against mRNA. And as of today, you pretty much, if you want to, get a vaccine or a shot against COVID, you have two options. One is uh, Moderna BioNTech, the other one, uh, sorry, Moderna, and the other one is Pfizer and BioNTech. Um, so we have actually these two options that are versatile, quick enough, the capacities there, we know about efficacy and safety. So I think that doubt is still out there. I said, is that then translatable into, I said, will flu and RSV and other approaches work as successfully and as competitive towards the existing technologies and i think there the market takes now the view okay you know enough time to wait for that that will take some time uh, the market obviously doesn't this or doesn't like that you have now um, um, a revenue model that comes from for example for moderna 20 plus billion in revenues and huge profits that are declining now for years and years on the COVID side up until then um, i would say the sustainable recurring businesses the so-called seasonal vaccines being instead of flu or RSV or I said if COVID becomes seasonal how we see it already as of today then we'll overgrow this so I think it's a bit of both in terms of the growth skepticism in a sense that the growth investors have all left the value investors are not sure yet you know about the mid and long term so I think that's that's um, right now obviously uh, where the company is at but we believe absolutely in the technology that it's proven itself it's safe capacity is there versatility is there so we think actually moderna is is on a comeback road um, when exactly the stock market will reflect that we don't know but i said from a fundamental stance we are there much much more optimistic than i said what currently the market price is in <clears throat> the Daniel, same for many approaches we have out there 
Well, I was wondering, I mean, a lot of, our, you know, a lot of people have heard of Moderna, obviously, and that's a, a top 10 holding uh, in uh, BB Biotech. But are there any other companies in that top 10 that you'd be worth highlighting, you know, quickly in terms of um, upcoming trials or <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. developments in the pipeline? Sorry, might be my, voice just, my just okay. voice just went away. Um, so we think, for example, if you scale it a bit in terms of large cap, for example, we have a Vertex. I mean, why do I mention that Vertex is, you could say, in, in its core business or core franchise actually maturing? Vertex has revolutionized how you treat, for example, cystic fibrosis patients. So they take a tablet a day nowadays that actually let them live kind of like a normal life, respiratory function, close to normal, um, hospitalization gone, lung infection gone, etc. So a huge success that has propelled the company to become a large cap with 10 billion in revenues and very substantial profitability. And I would say, why why do we stick to Vertex at these days? Is although I said it's a maturing case in terms of its CF business, we think actually they invest and have a very transformative pipeline. They will launch uh, by year end the first gene editing product. Um, that's I said a couple of years ago, if uh, people recall. The gene editing technology received the Nobel laureate or the Nobel Prize in terms of innovation, um, how it has transformed not just academia and basic science, but nowadays, as I said, it starts to translate actually in real products for, for patients. And interesting topic about this, this is a real once in a lifetime, so a curative intent or approach. It's still an invasive procedure, but as I said, for um, people with very severe um, um, bone marrow, let's say, blood system disease, disorders like, for example, sickle cell or beta thalassemia. For many of them, this could mean, um, I said, once in a lifetime treatment, and then, you know, you're kind of cured of the disease. And that's a typical example. We'll see further late stage data points in pain. Think of, I said, pain medication that um, people, I said, shall not get addicted to. We have, for example, a huge crisis uh, in terms of opioids and fentanyl. Um, addicts, for example, in the US, that starts now to translate as well more and more globally. Things like that are, uh, we are convinced to said are transformative. There, for example, we wait for um, late stage clinical data points. I said the gene editing is much further than that. There, we expect actually regulatory, uh, for example, approval by year end. So you see there is a, a substantial sequence of, of events just in that. Um, I said we had an Argenics. That's now one of the largest top one and top two. That's our only European name. I would mention that one, and then we probably have to stop for time reason because I could talk on and oh, on. Oh, there's not there's a, Euro, a European company. There's in a the European one one European company right now. Um, because the whole business actually, is so US dominated, isn't it? Yes, but, it's yeah. very US dominated. But a huge success case out of I said the Benelux. Um, I said Argenics has or is now on the way to transform. I said many of the severe um, autoimmune disorders. Um, myasthenia gravis is the first one where I said these antibodies actually attack tissue from uh, these these folks and actually turn them, I said, into a chronic and severe disorders. Very elegant mechanism that said the company is now launching, just reported, for example, third quarter results this morning that said are outstanding in terms of growth. We think this is going to be a multi-billion opportunity because said there are many, many more disorders than not just um, myasthenia gravis, for example, where I said these autoantibodies actually trigger or are the base and, and the driver of disease. 
And that's, I think, what now our Genix is, is on the mids. And as you just point out, our portfolio is highly geared towards the US. That comes out of the concentration approach. And that I said, we build certain areas, or you can say like a matrix function in terms of where do we see gene editing, where do we see gene therapy, where do we see RNA, RNA spets in um, which disease areas, is it autoimmune, is it cancer, etc. And then you have one or two spots that you can fit. And if you uh, invest in, I would say, the leading companies, you very often will end up um, in, in a US-centric portfolio around biotech. So Europe has some selective attractive ideas and the rest of the world as well. So we don't have a myopic view on the US, but from a bottom-up approach, I would still say for the time being, you end up very often with a highly geared um, exposure towards the US if you invest in biotech. It can't, it can't be avoided, really. Um, which brings us to um, so the regulatory situation. I mean, in the past, uh, mergers and acquisitions and bids have been a big sort of driver of, of returns yep. in, the, in the sector. But they've, um, in the bear market, they've, they've um, gone away. Though, of course, low valuations do attract bids. So we have seen big bids coming through in the past year or so. Um, you've not seemed to benefit um, from them quite so much. So, um, you know, Pfizer, Biohaven, um, uh, well, we've seen, for example, I said Pfizer with CGen, etc. Yeah, yeah sure. No, or I said Merck with Prometheus. So we have seen some. So I said A, they're still select. I think there are 10 or 11, I would say, deals in the public market, for example, only in brackets in 2023 that would fit our scope where we're invested in. So you have hundreds of companies that are listed. So I would say it's one to one and a half percent of these companies were taken out. If you're on a concentrated portfolio book, um, you will have less often a takeover candidate. But if you have one, then obviously the implications are much more severe in a sense, and obviously that drives much more performance and relative performance in the short term. I would say two years ago, we saw quite a big break when the FTC blocked certain or wanted to block certain transactions. Amgen Horizon was one that I said got got very loud and, and where FTC got loud and quite aggressive. They've retracted recently and the deal got consumed. Um, Illumina Grail in the life science tools was another important um, example in terms of, you know, the FTC, I said, as a federal trade commission often looks at the monopolistic situation, tries to avoid that, um, tries to avoid that, I said, the buyer gains unfair competitive advantages and price advantages and control, so to speak. Um, I said there was a political push for that as well, I think. And I said recently we saw a retraction of that, and I think that shall be a positive. But currently we face a bit of another conundrum in a sense that, I said, some of these smaller cap companies that have lost a lot of value are actually not willing to sell themselves at a small premium because said that means they're way, way below where they have been. I think that's still a reset that takes place. But we think M&A activity will actually continue because all the large caps, and you can listen to every pharma manager out there, if they call it bolt-on acquisition or licensing and BD, they know exactly that without external innovation, they can't sustain their growth profiles and their growth trajectory. So we think that will remain if you want to say so, um, an, an industry evolution over time. It, it's a bit cyclical, I agree, um, but definitely something we expect to continue. And also said the last deal we had was MyOvent announced in 2022 and consummated this spring. So it didn't help us on a performance side, but on a cash level. 
but I said we have a, we think a lot of attractive assets and technology in the portfolio represented. I said rather concentrated. If one or the other uh, will make it, you will see that. Um, I said propel obviously our performance quite a bit. Um, it's not our strategy to invest in takeover candidates per se, but we think I said ultimately, if you have strong assets and strong technology, one or the other will eventually be. Uh, will be picked, and we had huge successes in the past. An Actelion in Switzerland that got taken over for 30 billion. We have large deals like Celgene that got taken out by Bristol. Um, we have obviously seen in the ecology space, you know, the first generation CAR T companies like Juno or Kite or Pharmacyclic. So we have had one over the other. Hep C was a perfect example of the past where we had then substantial performance contribution. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not hesitant or actually not. I have no doubt that as well in the future, BB Biotech will have substantial participation as well. I can tell you when and which company it is, but I'm convinced from the quality and content we have that this will be part of our future as well. Yeah, it's slightly slightly random, isn't it? Or, or which ones get bid for, I suppose, but um, and which ones you hold. But in terms of the kind of these, you know, the bad conditions in the capital markets, um, eighty percent of your portfolio is either profitable or financed to reach profitability. Um, so how long is the runway for those that are still uh, loss making? Yes. So um, I said, if you if you think of a classical biotech evolution, you know, it takes six to eight years for a product to start clinical trial to get to regulatory authorities get launched and then another two three years to reach actually profitability so, so you take a substantial amount of capital to get from starting to finish line meaning you know from start of project all the way to profitability and timelines as well so we have in our portfolio right now i said 80 plus percent that is financed through um i would say you know plus minus um what is it around i think 30 plus percent that's already now sustainable profitable I said plus minus half of the portfolio that that's on the go to get profitable um i said that obviously depends a bit on the speed and velocity of that but they're financed through so we we feel quite safe around that and then i said around 15 to 20 percent that require capital and that goes all the way some companies that we call out there for example an interesting case is revolution medicine that will just merge now with actually a cash box and will soon have a balance sheet of almost 2 billion of cash. But we qualified as not yet clear if that's sufficient to actually reach profitability. It could be the last financing, we don't know. All the way to some, I would call almost micro cap companies like Molecular Templates or Black Diamond, where we know they have you know, one and a half, two years of cash on hand. So these companies have to do something. Either a business development deal, meaning they get some non-dilutive capital from a pharma partner that licenses an asset or something out of the company. Um, shareholders give the company more capital in the near term. That can be quite dilutive because said valuation are substantially under pressure. Or last but not least, one or the other company could be sold because I said the valuation discrepancies there. And I said for some of these, there is even the risk that they go under, meaning um, as of today's situation, we have in this microcap world as well companies that will ultimately have the risk to disappear. Yeah, I mean, so uh, this extreme situation means very large upside potential, but I said higher or much higher risk than, for example, where they have been three or four years ago. Um, but I said that's for us, luckily, I said a very small percentage currently of the portfolio. I said the large, large degree is very stable and I think very well set. 
Yeah, it, that's a, the classic sort of biotech uh, proposition. I mean, clearly there are high risks there and potentially high re- rewards. Um, and investors have been risk averse. Do you think with the signs that interest rates uh, may be peaking in the US, that this top-down macroeconomic pressure will, uh, will abate and uh, investor confidence might improve um, and sentiment towards your sector might improve as well? Yes, I think I, I, on that front, I said we have seen or I have experienced now in my two decades multiple very cyclical behaviors uh, from markets. Sometimes said it was capital market driven, uh, sometimes said it was fundamental um, driven or at least perceived fundamental, like I said, the Obamacare that I mentioned. I think IRA is right now such a situation. But I think it's we don't obviously have a crystal ball regarding the macroeconomic environment and we have gotten proven all wrong over the last one and a half years as well how steep certain, at least the US situation has evolved. I think it's a certain visibility would be already good that, you know, high is high enough. I know as well, there's some expectation for a certain break in 2024, meaning interest rates could slightly lower again. I think visibility that it doesn't go much higher than where we are today would be already of help. Ultimately, it will be the fundamental side that has to win, meaning so do you think it has to succeed uh, and that has to be the overperformer over the capital market and i think then you will see as well capital flows back so i think it's a bit of a um, um a cyclicality or self-fulfilling prophecy there um capital market shall not get worse that would be my wish list in terms of that and then the success case of the industry will prove itself i think from then on we'll see more and more capital flow back because that capital flows over the last two years have been very negative meaning a lot of capital has been withdrawn it's not just has gone lower as for example due to performance but withdrawn actually actively um, and i said m&a and bd has become the dominant player in actually financing the industry that continues as said so if the broader capital markets you know rediscover so to speak this as a growth area of attractive returns and opportunity then we think as well there is an opportunity for substantial um, um, performance upside from where we are as of today. And do you think in 30 years' time, looking back at now, do you think the current difficulties will look like a blip, like some of the downturns look like a bit of a blip on your existing performance chart? I am actually convinced about this because said um, that sound a bit brave. Obviously, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next three decades. But if you think of you know the 10, 12, or let's say 12% return, compounded over 30 years you know you just mentioned numbers you go 15 to 20 times in value and we have seen for example i said back in the 99 2000 or then the correction in 2002 three people thought we will never reach these highs look at our long-term chart i mean this 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 uh up cycle and then substantial correction of back then i said today looks like a blip that's because I said the long-term compounding effect of this industry we are convinced will 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 draft the performance and will reach obviously new highs in the future. Okay, well, on that uh, slightly positive note, uh, we'll perhaps leave it there. But just one more thing: I mean, the, the, the company celebrating thirty years. What are you up to this month to uh, to mark the occasion? Yeah, I said we will we'll have I think an event that I said highlights I said some of the transformative um, potential. One topic we touched on that was said the mRNA technology. So we are looking forward to. Obviously, have Moderna uh, present um, at, at this event um, and explain, I said, how the future looks like, not just how the last couple of years looked like. 
we will have one of the board members, luckily I said, Mats um, Thompson, that's in our board, um, who comes from the Novo Nordisk side, talk about obesity. That's currently, you know, um, the, the, the therapeutic area that's obviously in, in, in the hot seat, so to speak, in terms of performance, meaning, you know, um, very steep adoption of products, um, very positive share price performance for the LLEs and Novo Nordisk of the world. And then our chairman will have said, not just look back the three decades, but will as I said there, um, you know, to give a certain outlook and what we expect for the future. So looking forward to such an event. Um, and I said, then obviously that we can use those messages and lines as well to transport them and, and convey the message that I said, Biotech and BB Biotech is a very attractive investment opportunity. Great. Okay, Daniel, well, that's all the time we got, all we got time for, I'm afraid. But um, yeah, many happy returns to uh, BB Biotech and let's hope returns uh, uh, start to improve and return back to their, their former uh, uh, higher level. Um, in the meantime, Daniel, very good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. 